Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, the show clinging by our fingernails to the edge of the crevasse that is political and social justice news in 2016. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News, coming to you from our Los Angeles studio. Coming up on the show today, Meredith Graves and Jamil Smith discuss what white people and non-black people of color can do to be allies without being obnoxious. Also ahead, Anna Marie Cox and Marcus Ellsworth discuss their experiences on the ground at last week's police brutality protests. And Julianne Ross finds out what it takes to get arrested for a Facebook status. And lest we forget ourselves, we'll close things out with an attempt to find happiness in spite of everything? But first, MTV political writer Jane Coaston delivers an important and terribly timely lesson on the history of gun control and its connection to race in America. We can't talk about the history of gun control in America without talking about race, because the history of gun control in America was largely based on keeping guns out of the hands of black people, period. Despite the Second Amendment to the Constitution, African Americans have long been prevented from exercising their right to bear arms. During slavery, slaves were forbidden access to guns or ammunition, even knives. Even free African Americans could have their homes searched for weapons. But black Americans, like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, fought back, oftentimes with the weapons they were denied. After the Civil War and the most repressive days of Jim Crow, African Americans in the South were subjected to so-called black codes that forbade them to own guns, knives, or even liquor. Lynchings were commonplace, with the full support of law enforcement. No wonder civil rights pioneer and general badass Ida B. Wells wrote, A Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home, and it should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. When the white man, who is always the aggressor, knows he runs as great a risk of biting the dust every time his Afro-American victim does, he will have greater respect for Afro-American life. The leaders of the civil rights movement knew this too. Martin Luther King applied for, and was denied, a concealed carry permit. As Charles E. Cobb, the former failed secretary for the Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee, would later write, they were responding to terrorism the same way anyone else would. But again, the government, with the support of the National Rifle Association, worked to pass legislation that would limit gun ownership, particularly by black Americans. The Mulford Act, passed by then-California Governor Ronald Reagan in 1967, banned the open carry of loaded weapons, and was passed in direct response to the activism of the Black Panthers. A year later, the Gun Control Act of 1968 banned the sale of some smaller weapons nationwide. In 2016, while white Americans are more likely to own and carry guns, black Americans are more likely to be punished for it. The more than half of black Americans believe that guns can keep people safe, gun control measures are often unevenly applied, and black communities, already heavily policed, bear the brunt of them, putting more black people in prison, and sometimes getting them killed. Philando Castile was a concealed carry permit holder, licensed by the state of Minnesota to have and carry a gun. He was shot to death in his car, with his girlfriend in the passenger seat and her daughter in the back of the car. Until the Second Amendment works, really works, for all of us, how can we be sure if it's really working at all? That was MTV's Jane Coaston in Washington. America is built on power structures that intersect and affect each and every one of us. 
By remaining silent on a political issue that you think doesn't affect you, you may be passively contributing to its persistence. But the process of speaking up can be daunting. What if you say the wrong thing with the best intentions? Where's the line between helpfulness and performative wokefulness? You want to be a friend and neighbor and responsible steward of humanity, but you also don't want to get in the way. Here to help you navigate is our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith, in conversation with MTV News host, Meredith Graves. So Meredith, we've been talking about this offline and I wanted to bring this conversation on the mic. What can white people do after we see black people killed on video? I was thinking about when all this stuff went down last week with the police violence in Minnesota and in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, about that scene in Malcolm X where a young white student approaches Malcolm after he's given a speech at Harvard and asks him, hey, what can I do as a white person who cares to better the experience of African-Americans in this country? And he looks at her dead in the eye and says, nothing. Now, I'm not sure if that scene actually took place in real life. There's some debate about that, but it made me think about white, white allyship. And I know that this is something that's on your mind, too. Do you think he was right? Let's let's start from the idea that it did happen. Okay. Let's say it happened. Okay. Is he right? What, and what did he mean? That The meaning, I think, is a different question. I think the meaning could say, like, if you're saying nothing, if you just take it on face value and say nothing, you can't do anything to help us. I don't think that's what he meant. Mm-hmm. I think meaning that there's really, this is a struggle that we need to deal with, that we need to confront, that we need to lead. And I think that that's the same is, is, is pretty much true today. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the fight for civil rights for black people needs to be led by black people. And that white allies can contribute by, I guess, essentially lending their privilege or um, essentially offering space for those black folks who might not otherwise have gotten the space to have their voices heard, to have access to certain, say, media platforms or what have you, to certain actual physical spaces in a city. If you are a white ally who wants to make sure that there is space available in a church or in an office building or a library for a meeting, so it's, you know, just theorizing here, those are tiny ways that they can help. But I think that at the end of the day, um, Malcolm may have felt that there's just simply, you know, nothing that she, as this privileged white student at Harvard, could do to further the struggle. Now, was he correct? I'm not sure, because I think that if you, you look at it, really, racism is a white problem to solve. And so I think it's the interest the, the 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 sort of notion of white allyship is odd to me because at the end of the day we're supposed to be helping them solve the problem <laughs> as opposed to them helping us mm-hmm. address it this is absolutely 100% spot on right what are the ways white people can be relevant to the persistence of the conversation about race in this country and one thing that we talked about earlier is not talking I think there are a number of things that, you know, you can do to make sure that you are an ally. First thing is to just be an ally. Don't worry about performing as an ally. 
because I think what too many people get caught up in is if I'm speaking out on a particular issue, if I don't get it exactly right, if I don't nail exactly what the vocabulary is or um, or know all the different cases or um, maybe, you know, pronounce a name wrong, if I mess up in some way, I'm going to get trolled for it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get called a racist. I'm going to get called names that I don't like. And I will have stuck my neck out for people who were then criticizing me. Number one, you have to be open to that criticism. It's part of learning. It's like it's like being it's like going to school. You know what I mean? That's the thing about people is that they're more scared of accidentally being racist than they because they're not worried about the actual effect that racism could have on them because it doesn't affect them. So right. like, the worst thing that can happen to them is that they get called a racist. And beat on on Twitter. Which would be nice if that was the worst thing that could happen to me. (laughs) But so, you know, don't be afraid to engage online. You know, if you have the best intentions and if you do face criticism, if you do hear people saying, hey, you know, this 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 thing you said wasn't quite right. Or, you know, actually, I see things a lot differently than what you're talking about. Be receptive and and know that you're engaging in a dialogue and not that. Your your allyship, you know, is what you make of it. It's 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 not something that you dictate to the people to whom you're an ally. It's something that you, frankly, need to have dictated to you a little bit. What do white allies and non-black people of color who want to show support to the black community, as it were, during times of crisis? What do you do on social media? What do you not do on social media? What is and isn't appropriate? Um, sometimes the best thing on social media to do is to just be quiet for a second. I don't mean being silent, period, because, you know, as a lot of people like to say, silence can be interpreted as violence itself. But what people need to do is make sure that they're stating informed opinions. Mm-hmm. So if you want to say Black Lives Matter, understand that that is not just three words that you throw out, but understand why people are saying that, understand what that movement is, because it is the name of a movement, understand um, the context for why people feel the need to say that Black Lives Matter at all. Um, And if you're retweeting it, look at the person you're retweeting it from, which is something else that we brought up earlier. Yes. Whether or not you're hearing about black issues from actual black people. Exactly. Um, I have a good buddy, Anil Dash, who makes point to... uh, not retweet men. He makes sure that he retweets women only uh, in order to amplify women's voices on social media. I think that the same thing can apply, especially in these moments, with regards to amplifying black voices. Mm-hmm. Understand who the key players are. Understand who the writers out here are um, who are you know giving voice to this issue. And, uh, and this is just a unifying social media rule. Make sure you read what you're tweeting out before you send it out. Okay, so I am white. I'm really? white. My, my mother was an eggshell. My father was a sheet of fax paper. <laughs> like, I'm <laughs> white as fuck, dude. But most of my friends aren't. And a lot of my friends are black men. My partner is a black man. I've seen a number of my black friends posting on social media about, hey, if you haven't contacted your friends to ask how they're doing, you should probably do that. Right. And then I come home and my boyfriend is in a hole and doesn't want to talk to anyone and just wants to be left alone. What are ways for white allies to approach 
black loved ones, coworkers, friends, and not everyone is going to want the same thing ever, ever in any across any line that's drawn, whether it's race or gender or sexuality or whatever. But if you're white and you want to check on your friends and make sure they're okay. What do you do? What do you do? I'll tell you what's worked for me, which is friends in the aftermath of uh, these police shootings uh, sending me a text or an IM saying, I love you. Just all that's it. Just I love you. Just so you know. And sometimes that's enough. Other friends have said, hey, you let's hang out. You know, nothing, no pretext to it. No, like, let's hang out because two black men were mur- murdered on videotape and I think you might be depressed about it. Or I know you have to cover this stuff, so I know that may have an effect on you, so let's get a beer and have you not think about it for a minute. No, let's just, let's hang out. No pretext. Mm-hmm. And then... If we were to hang out, then if it comes up, great. You can talk about it. Be prepared to talk about it. If it doesn't, great. Talk about sports. Talk about fashion. Talk about whatever you normally talk about. Talk about your lives. Mm-hmm. Other things that have worked. Um, if you are a colleague of someone who you think might be affected by what's going on in this, you know, with regards to police shootings of black people. I think that, frankly, the best thing, and you know them well, you know them well enough to say, hey, how you doing? Just check in. Just check in on somebody. Let them know you give a shit. Sometimes that's all you have to do. You don't have to go to them and perform all this stuff about how many articles you've read or hey did you see what Tanahasi Coates said about this or hey did you see what <laughs> all these you know commentators on TV said because honestly that sometimes makes it worse because you know what a lot of people don't want to consume any more of this than they already are consuming and make sure that you just it's, it's a perfect opportunity for people who are not regular targets of the police in this regard, in this regard, to open up and say, hey, let me have this not be about me for a bit. It's a perfect opportunity to practice selflessness. You know, look, you're never going to understand what it's like to be in this skin. You're never going to understand what it's like to be walking down a, a sidewalk in New York City under Bloomberg and understand that stopping and frisking may happen to you at any moment. Anytime you pass a police officer, that police officer may decide to, if not violate your rights, then to strip you of your dignity. And we're, so that we're not just talking about when they shoot us. We're talking about when they violate our dignity. We're talking about when they abuse us, when they, when they, when they humiliate us. When they do all the things that don't go with protecting and serving, all these ineffective bullying techniques that only serve to make mayors and police commissioners feel better. Those are the kind of things that we're de- you're going through, we're dealing with. And also recognize it when it's happening around you. If you live in, Bro- in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and you see every day a young man being stopped and frisked at your subway stop, understand what the hell's going on and understand that maybe that's not right. 
And that maybe that there's something that you can do. You can call your local councilman. You can call the mayor. You can have you may have avenues to power that black people who are being subjugated do not have. Use them. So if people did that instead of trying to tell me or show me how woke they are all the time, that would that would be a lot better. That was MTV's Jamil Smith and MTV's Meredith Graves in our New York studio. Last week on The Stakes, you heard our senior political correspondent, Anna Marie Cox, and our resident poet, Marcus Ellsworth, provide dispatches from protests in Minneapolis and Baton Rouge. They each spoke to activists about how communities in Minnesota and Louisiana drew together following the shootings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. This week, they shared their experiences with one another. Yeah, uh, you go first. So you you went to Baton Rouge, and what? How did things unfold while you were there? When I when I first got on the ground, there was of course a lot of a lot of energy in the city, a lot of. A lot of anxiety and, and fear and anger you could you could sense but there was also the the beginnings of the community coming together to have discussions about what justice looks like in the case of Alton's murder and also what the what the larger demands would be from the community uh, in the short term of course prosecuting the officers involved in Alton's death and in the longer term addressing issues that the city has been struggling with for quite some time um, the the systemic racism that people do feel comes from the police department on a regular basis. And of course, also the, 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 the poverty that is uh, plaguing the North Baton Rouge area where Alvin was murdered. It's a part of town where they've removed all the hospitals, where there's a growing food desert, where people can't get to, uh, to even a grocery store in some parts of town, uh, not easily anyway. So there's all these other things that they're, uh, that they're talking about and and trying to organize around. And in the days that follow, that have followed, there's been even more work of, uh, along those lines because the thing with Baton Rouge is that there's a there's quite a lot of leadership there. There's, you know, of course you have more traditional avenues like the NAACP, and then you have um, community organi- organizers who've been working on Stop the Violence campaigns and trying to raise awareness of, of the struggles they've been dealing with. And everyone seems to be um, organizing around Alton's death and searching for those answers while the public eye is on the city for this issue. And what was the crowd like? It's a black neighborhood that this happened and it was largely black protesters? Um, It was by and large black folks who were showing up for everything. In fact, at the NAACP press conference, um, city councilman John Delgado um, called out to the crowd and asked, you know, are there any Republicans here? And there was no one there responding, you know, representing for the Republicans. And then he, he said, he pointed out that he spotted a couple of white folks, but he wasn't sure if they were with the press or not. And, <laughs> um, and that he didn't really see much, you know, Hispanic or Latino uh, representation either. And he, you know, as a non-black person himself, he called out that there's a need for all of Baton Rouge to stand together. Um, by the time the weekend hit, Rick, Friday and Saturday, you did start seeing more non-black um, allies showing up. 
In fact, some of the arrests that were made were uh, non-black allies. So it's it's becoming more diverse in who's standing up in Baton Rouge, but it definitely didn't start that way in the first few days. Did you get a sense for what the mood was? <clears throat> people are passionate about uh, what happened. A lot of people knew Alton because he was a staple in that neighborhood. Like he mm-hmm. was the guy selling CDs. And there, there's a lot of anger that this man who most people had a very fond uh, opinion of uh, was was killed so mercilessly. I didn't get a sense of just you know un- undirected, unbridled anger. It wasn't just rage. People had questions. People were are looking. They were searching for something they could do that would mean something. I think I heard a lot of that in the crowd. They didn't want to just make noise. They wanted to protest, demonstrate, and support something that would change things. Something that was mm-hmm. um, that was going to have an impact. And now opinions about what that is vary widely. What is the situation in Baton Rouge politically? Like, who is who? Who are they speaking to when they're doing these protests? Um, well, there's a lot of energy directed towards the mayor, uh, Kip Harden, mm-hmm. because um, well, he was in the for most of this week. He's been absent from the public eye and from the city itself. People are definitely targeting the bastions of power in the city. They're they, you know they were demonstrating by the courthouse, the city hall, the the Capitol building. They're 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 talking to power. They're, they're trying to speak their truth to the folks who have control over, um, over policy. And they, they're offering up their own answers, too. And Kip Holden is a, is a black Democrat, right? Yes. So it's, it's, it's maybe a little, especially unusual, unusual to an outsider, that he would be just absent here. Well, um, for those in Baton Rouge, folks who especially say on the north side of town, on North Baton Rouge, they don't have a lot of love for the mayor. Uh. Um, because he has, um, there have been proposals to help revitalize the area. You know, like I said, the hospital shutting down, the the the, the roads going unpaved, the street lights being let allowed to burn out, and the mayor shot it down, saying it was a scheme that would bankrupt the city. Mm. And even folks outside of North Baton Rouge were upset and incensed by that. So that, uh, coupled with his response um, in the past week, people aren't too fond of him right now. Uh, do you have a sense of what might happen next i think from from talking to some of the organizers there i i think what's going to happen over the next few weeks is they're definitely keeping an eye on the investigation of the officers that seems to be priority one for the short term they want to make sure that there's an indictment that there are actual charges pressed in the long term i think what we're going to see is there's there's this uh this coalescing of leadership in the city. There's there's people who, you know, existing community leaders and a few that have popped up just in the past few weeks, people who, especially people who were, um, who feel directly impacted by what happened to Alton. Well, it's a very different situation. Well, you know, I'm not sure how different they can be. I mean, a lot of these cities um, all over the country have the same sorts of structural inequalities, but there's a few interesting cosmetic differences. Uh, here in the Twin Cities over the Philando Castile uh, murder. And one is that the most obvious superficial difference is that when I was going to the protests and vigils on Thursday in the immediate aftermath of his death, it was, I would say, almost 50% um, non-black. So there was a spontaneous kind of rally, sit-in protest at the governor's mansion and then there was a, a vigil that was organized by the parents and staff at the school. Um, and they said they expected about 30 or 40 families and over a thousand people turned up to that vigil. It was, 
as far as you could see a city block full of people in that, I would say it was about maybe 70% to 80% white. It was a stunning turnout. And, 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 and does that turnout being mostly white, does it have more to do with just the demographics of the area? Um, it has to do with the demographics of the area, the demographics of the school, I think. But also, I think this is a this situation, I mean, you know, in unfortunately, what is a genre, right, of, of videos, this video was especially graphic and disturbing, mm. right? Yeah. And especially um, the context of it primed to tug at anyone's heartstrings, you know, the 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 child sitting there, the girlfriend's um, sort of uh, eloquence um, and composure. Um, this is a very, very liberal city. The Twin Cities are, are very progressive in general. There's a lot of people here who would tell you that they believe in in um, structural inequality exists. They would tell you that they believe in the cause of Black Lives Matter. But I think there's a lot of white people that would not put themselves on a protest line until this week. Out there, there have been white people putting themselves in the position where normally black protesters are, like yeah. uh, in positions to be arrested and to, mm -hmm. to be the disruptors rather than just uh, sitting on the sidelines. I want to point out something that's happening here, which doesn't sound like it's happening in, in Baton Rouge, which is it, which is almost the problem of when you have a already progressive government um, that has heard the messages that you've you have and is is sort of already acting in that way, already acting in the, that direction. Like the question of how do you push even harder? In the aftermath of the Jamar Clark shooting last year, which was a very complicated shooting and did not result in indictments, but it did result in a 19-day occupancy of a precinct in the north side of town, which is where the black um, Minneapolis live. Um, there was art, there was a very, I think, mostly constructive dialogue with the Twin Cities, with the Minneapolis mayor and Minneapolis police chief. And they've already instituted some reforms that are pretty notable. Um, I would say I talked to someone city hall who said that they're they she says conservatively about 40 percent of the demands of um the zero campaign zero mm -hmm. are are in process of being implemented in minneapolis so body cameras uh community policing um public access to body cam footage so even in a in a place where there has been there has been an effort there's been an effort there's been a real effort yep from the powers that be to address these issues of systemic racism, to address police brutality, to lessen uh, the harm that's done by the system mm -hmm. as it stands. Even there, they, we still have what happened to Philando. We have um, yep. an excessive use of force in a situation that did not warrant it. Part of that, of course, is that these are patchwork of police departments, right? Mm -hmm. and, and Philando Castile was shot by someone who was from the St. Anthony Police Department, um, which is neither St. Paul or Minneapolis. Mm. And what this opens up actually is something I hadn't thought of before and something that I think is part of the conversation that the activists here are having with the governor, who is someone who is at least listening, right? right. Is that it is relatively easy for departments the size of St. Paul and the size of Minneapolis to implement these changes, not just because they have progressive leadership, but because they have the money. And it's these smaller, smaller, you know, more conservative police departments that that argue we just can't do this because of the money, um, and that is where actually maybe listeners also can understand this is where that they they can start to agitate for 
themselves, which is because there needs to be federal and state money directed to those departments so that they can start implementing some of these changes. Because some of the worst abuses, you, I'm sure, are fully aware, happen in these smaller departments. Yeah, because they're not, um, like you said, they're not funded to address these issues. And also, they're generally not targeted by um, by the folks calling for change. It tends to be in larger cities where you see uh, strong movements for reform. Um, so that and leaves the media coverage, too. And the media coverage, too. Like, this, if this were to happen in, like, sadly enough, if this were to happen in some little, you know, 2,000-person town, it would be less likely to have... The, the momentum behind it. The frustration is, is so great here. There is actually a, a call to shut down um, the police departments in the Twin Cities. And I think, you know, that's, it sounds sort of extreme, and I think it is, and I think it's not a goal that probably they can have. But I do think that fits in, in some ways, with the just frustration that people have. And also the the general sense, and I know this is part of the Black Lives Matter rhetoric nationwide, and maybe you can speak more to it, which is that policing as we know it is a completely broken system. Well, yeah, especially when you're dealing with departments that have tried. They've tried the reform, they've tried, because the things that have been enacted already in there, out there have uh, are usually the demands. <laughs> like, it's like, you know, it's usually the, okay, we want to see more oversight of police. We want to have see communities have more say-so in how they're policed and if they're policed. Um, and when you've done all that, it kind of makes sense that your opening bid is just shut it down and then we'll start mm-hmm. negotiation from there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 something that I know frustrates um, those who are actually trying to have the conversations, you know, when they sit down at the table. Um, and I'll just touch on one last frustration here, which is that um, another thing I think people should realize is that when we talk about Black Lives Matter, um, that is not a like democratic organization with representatives that are elected from the field you know like it's not it's a movement it's not a it's it's not an organization per se yeah not not in the traditional sense that most people would think of like not not in the way you would think of like the NAACP being an organization um so it's so it's hard for for sometimes in these situations and I know this is the case here and I'm I don't know about Baton Rouge but maybe you can just say before we end which is that it's tough to say who gets a seat at the table you know, like, who are you representing when you say you're representing Black Lives Matter? What what authority are you acting on? It is both the strength of the movement and a weakness of the movement that it does not have a specific leadership and it doesn't have like a list of demands, per se. Well, actually, um, it kind of does. <laughs> See, um, it kind of does. Yes. You, you've, got, you've got like the, 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 of course, the founding organization with, you know, Alicia Garza and Opal Tometi and the other the other co-founders. And then you've got the chapters all over the country and in other parts of the world, too. Um, but yeah, the problem comes in is that folks feel like they can just say Black Lives Matter and they're part of it. Um, mm-hmm. And that leads Which again, to, good and bad. Yeah, I good think. and bad. It's good and bad. The good thing is that you can get more people to sign on. The bad thing is that not everybody realizes what the core values of that movement are. Um, not fully. Yeah. Um, there is a lot of uh, misunderstanding on that front in the public eye. And and honestly, part of it, I think, is also how, uh, how it gets talked about. On, on you know national stages so there is yeah there is that that issue as well because i know in baton rouge there were some some uh, some folks saying that they were part of black lives matter but when when pressed to what that means they didn't fully understand it yet either <laughs> um so there there is that and i think i think the, the one thing people can do is when they're looking for ways to support is to find 
find official statements from from folks who've been putting in the work. I think is another yeah. thing is from people who like you know who have been you know working on on policy issues who have been organizing within communities um, and not just the people who just showed up you know like uh, I think that's the real difference there it's people who understand what the the fight they're in as opposed to those who are just caught up in the passion of the moment from Minnesota that was MTV's Anna Marie Cox in conversation with MTV's Marcus Ellsworth in Tennessee earlier this week Four men in Detroit were arrested for the crime of posting statements on social media that the Detroit police chief called quote-unquote threatening. Local news reports say they found the posts in question and that they all, in one way or another, either agree with or valorize suspected Dallas cop killer Micah Johnson. For example, one alleged Facebook post that got a man arrested read, and I quote, it's time to wage war and shoot the police first, end quote. The arrests raise questions about just who can say what on the internet. More than a few women have pointed out, notably game developer and perennial man-baby target Brianna Wu, that police nationwide have seemed pretty hapless and pretty helpless in the face of abuse, harassment, and threats received by citizens online until just about now. My deputy editor, Julianne Ross, called up George Freeman, lawyer and executive director of the nonprofit Media Law Resource Center, to find out exactly what you can and can't say in the real, real world, which, as we all know, is the internet. So first of all, the big question, um, posting negative opinions on social media might not be the best judgment call, but is it a crime? In most cases, it's not a crime. Um, just as burning the flag isn't a crime, uh, Supreme Court uh, ruled, I think, five to four uh, a couple of decades ago, um, saying things that are unpatriotic, that are stupid, that are inappropriate uh, are not uh, crimes either. The The rule is that speech is protected, speech of this type is protected, unless it's likely to incite imminent lawless action. And that's been interpreted as uh, being uh, likely to incite, you know, imminent, meaning really next day, next hour, uh, specific type of lawless action. So if you were to say or to post, uh, let's kill all the cops in the country, that's, uh, strangely enough, uh, because of our belief in people's freedom to give their opinions, no matter how dumb, um, that would be protected. If, on the other hand, you, just, you would say, let's meet at 3 p.m. in Times Square and shoot the cops who are on patrol in Times Square, that would not be protected, because that does uh, suggest imminent lawless action should take place, and it kind of gives a roadmap for how it should happen, and that would be viewed as an actual crime. Uh, because it would be, uh, you know, threatening murder. So it's more about the specificity of the post itself. Specificity and the time time lag, that it has to really be imminent. That's that's a word of the test. And that, that test uh, comes from a 1969 Supreme Court case, uh, and that really is, in a sense, the result or the final step in what was the famous uh, dissent of uh, Justices Holmes and Brandeis called the clear and present danger test. You know, that's what they always mm-hmm. talked about, that speech shouldn't be allowed, which 
presents a clear and present danger. And actually, that was their view and their dissent, because they were always on the dissenting side. And that ultimately became the majority rule, became the rule of the country. But it was the nomenclature is different, and it really is that speech is protected unless it uh, is likely to incite imminent lawless action. And so there's a matter of kind of likelihood, likelihood uh, specificity, and imminence that all kind of are part of the test. But unless, unless the threat is meets those uh, factors, uh, it's going to be protected as opinion, and it's just kind of you know speech, albeit inappropriate speech. So one of the men who was recently arrested in Detroit reportedly posted, all lives can't matter until black lives matter, kill all white cops. Is that something that would be considered a specific threat? I don't think so. I think that's almost exactly the example I gave a few minutes ago. Uh, You know, let's kill all the cops just isn't specific enough. It's not imminent enough, Uh, you know, as tasteless uh, as it is. I think that would be thrown out by the courts. What is the danger, if any, in making arrests based on social media posts? Well, I mean, the danger of making the arrest is that, A, in the short run, it's obviously uncomfortable for the person making the post, and B, in the long run, I think it undermines the the, the police action because their arrest and indictment would be thrown out. And so, it, you know, if they, have, they bring cases that they get thrown out, I think that undermines their authority. So I don't think it does anyone any good, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. You know, better. I mean, the whole idea of the First Amendment is that good ideas will trump bad ideas in the so-called marketplace of ideas, and I think that's what we probably ought to have allow uh, happen in this sort of situation, rather than uh, resort to criminal uh, the criminal process that really is in the end going to support the uh, inhospitable and the lousy speech. Do you think that people are starting to take what happens on the Internet a little more seriously now as evidenced by this? Well, that's a very subjective question. Personally, I don't think so. I think people take uh, what's on the Internet as, uh, you know, lightly, as, as exaggeration, as bloviation, as, as opinion. I mean, opinion is protected, which is why legally I don't see a case coming out of these sort of comments. On the one hand, the law really treats it the same, whether it's a blog or a, a post on a comment board as opposed to a newspaper article or letter. The law really is the same. On the other hand, the practical uh, reality is that I think people take what they read on the Internet with a grain of salt, don't take it all that seriously. Uh, but that's not what the law is. And there was a case about a year ago that the Supreme Court had, which we thought might give uh, some inkling of change about that. But in the end, the Supreme Court didn't go there, and it kind of ducked the uh, effect of the Internet part of the case and didn't say anything about it. So given the nature of the Internet and everything being documented, what advice do you have for listeners about their own social media usage? Well, I mean, as a, as a lawyer, I would tell my clients uh, to be as careful with what they write on the Internet than what they would then as to what they would write in a newspaper article or in a letter, because the law treats it the same way, even though they think that uh, there's much more um, uh, permissiveness and flexibility on the internet because no one takes it all that seriously. But the law does take it seriously. So I would tell the writer that they could uh, be liable if they write something defamatory or write something that invades someone's privacy, and that those are subject to the same rules as they always have been. Uh, On the other hand, 
I guess I would tell a potential plaintiff who's harmed by some comments that they probably won't have the easiest time because even though the law is the same, as I've just said, probably courts will bend over backwards and say, eh, no one took that all that seriously. You know, it really, really has to be bad before we're going to get the courts involved and someone's bloviating on a website that no one really believes anyhow. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Sure. Our pleasure. Thank you very much. That was MTV's Deputy News and Politics Editor, Julianne Ross in New York, speaking with George Freeman of the Media Law Resource Center. We're going to close things out this week with another piece from our very own poet-in-residence, MTV political writer Marcus Ellsworth. This week, Marcus has been thinking about how to find happiness in times like this, which lately seems like it's all the time. What's there to be happy about? We've watched innocent people die as their murders play out in tweets and headlines and video clips of a sniper at a march of cops crushing blackness of the sound of gunfire echoing out in the street. Meanwhile, murderers get pardoned. Congress tries to raise a shield for bigoted faith and a sword against queerness. And we are reminded that those constitutional amendments were not made for everybody. There are exceptions and disclaimers written in the blood of the enslaved, the oppressed, the massacred, the raped, the people who some would see break. But we are not broken. We refuse to be silent or to accept when others are silenced. And among the marches, the protests, the petitions, the freedom fighters planning their next missions, somewhere in the world, a black child dances and the ancestors sing for her. And I smile, a smile that I have to fight for. My happiness, your happiness is part of this struggle. When the burden feels too heavy, when the road seems too long, remember that we are also entitled to our joy. Those moments when we are our joyous selves are the times when we are free. For me, it's coming home to my boyfriend and our little black cat. It's cooking a meal. It's helping a friend in need and knowing that should I need, someone will be there. My joy is taking an adventure across a sea of words or down an unfamiliar road. My bliss lives in the dark, between the stars, under the moon, stretched across the horizon, in all of the empty open spaces filled by love. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more much, much more. The Republican National Convention kicks off Monday, with the Democratic Convention slated for the following week, and Monday through Thursday, every night, you'll have a midnight snack of a podcast episode from us to you. We're calling this mini-series Stakes After Dark, which appropriately, inevitably, abbreviates to SAD. For all complaints about this fine title, please see MTV News Executive Editor Alex Papadimus. And we're not abandoning our normal Friday offerings during this time. No, 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 no. You'll get 10 shows from us over the next two weeks for the price of absolutely free. And we'll be doing our best to be sure you get a little bit more than what you paid for. So tune in Monday and see how far our fingernails have dragged towards that waiting cliff's edge. From Los Angeles, I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. 
This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.